Welcome to Thrive, a Paychex business podcast where you'll hear timely insights to help you navigate marketplace dynamics and propel your business forward. Here's your host, Gene Marks. Hey, everybody, this is Gene Marks, and welcome to the Paychex Thrive Podcast. Hey, you ever wonder what went on behind the scenes when the Paycheck Protection Program was being created? What were the people thinking? How did they come up with the idea? What were some of their concerns on their mind? Well, join me for this conversation with Senator Marco Rubio from Florida. Marco Rubio, a longtime senator, was the principal, principal person behind the creation of the Paycheck Protection Program. So let's hear about his thoughts and his concerns and frustrations and also his look back at the Paycheck Protection Program. I think you'll find the conversation real interesting, particularly if you're one of the beneficiaries of the program. So we'll be back with Senator Rubio in just a moment. So Senator Rubio, um, first of all, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Um, the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, when historians look back at the pandemic, um, it will be a major part of the conversation. It is a, a historical part um, of, of how we reacted to the pandemic. Uh, almost 12 million loans approved, $800 billion given out through 5,500 lenders. Um, you know those numbers. So uh, let, me, let me ask you if I can, if, if, if you can take us back to March of 2020. Um, the NBA gets suspended. Uh, Tom Hanks test positive. Uh, the CARES Act is coming out on March 25th. Tell me the story of how you know of how you came up with the Paycheck Protection Program because you were the instrumental part behind it. Well, interestingly enough, we had started work on it uh, early in the process, initially as a tool uh, for uh, dealing uh, with supply chain. We we had done some work two years earlier, arguing that too, too much of our supply chain was being derived from vulnerable places overseas, primarily because of geopolitics, we were thinking. Hmm. And so what is small businesses role? What can we do to repurpose some of these loans that are run through private lenders uh, to small businesses in these key industries where we need to develop some resilience in our economy and the supply chain? When the pandemic, Sorry, go ahead. No, no, so when the pandemic sort of emerged, our next view of it is, well, we're going to have some supply chain disruptions because of the pandemic, particularly on the healthcare side, but just generally. Sure. And so how can we even tune it up to be that, you know, to deal with pandemic specific supply chains? And then by the time we get to that day in March, where it was apparent that we were going to have lockdowns or shutdowns of, of large portions of our economy is when we realized, my goodness, uh, we're going to have entire mainstreams wiped out. I mean, the Main Street just wiped out. They're not going to be able to open. The governments in some places are not going to allow them to open for potentially weeks. We didn't know how long, maybe months. And we're going to have a contagion here of unemployment, of a commercial real estate crisis, and a bunch of small businesses that are going to vanish and never come back. So we need to step forward and do something to at least keep people attached to their jobs. The view of it was, we're going to spend billions of dollars on unemployment benefits, aren't we better off keeping people attached to an employer via paycheck that also provides some money for the small business to be able to make their overhead payments and, 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 and you know, keep current on their leases and or rent. And, and that's how that came about uh, fairly quickly. And then we, look, we understood that the SBA was too small uh, to be able to do this through any of its existing programs. Um, it would have to be run uh, not just through the existing, you know, lenders uh, that we now use for those loans, but, but in fact, we would have to amplify the number of lenders that were eligible to provide them. So first of all, when you talk about we, who, who are the, who's the we that you're referring to? 
Well, I think honestly, the credit begins uh, with my staff and the small business committee and myself as we worked through it in, in my own personal office. But but I also give credit to Senator Cardin and Senator Shaheen on the Democratic side and Senator Collins, who's not a member of the committee on the Republican side, who played a key role in sort of negotiating the details of it. Obviously, you know, the the uh, one of the intricacies of a country like ours is so large and diverse is, uh, for example, if you're trying to help out uh, uh, a hotel or hospitality business, they're seasonal in some parts of the country, so you have to adjust for that. Then the whole question came up of what do we do for not-for-profits uh, who have never traditionally been eligible for SBA loans or SBA programs? What do we do about that? What do we do about the growing number of Americans that are de facto small businesses, but they're independent contractors? They're one or two-person shop. And, and how, what do we do for people that don't have banking relationships? How do we get finance? Uh, financial tech lenders involved in this and fintech lenders to new people to step up and be a part of processing this. So they played a key role in putting all that together. But but the name, I, I take credit for, I actually came up with the name Paycheck Protection Program because he wanted people to understand this was not a bailout or a giveaway. Yep. This was a way to deliver more effectively unemployment benefits to people who weren't technically unemployed, but were going to be if their employer was shut down by a government measure. You know, it's interesting, you know, I, and maybe I'm wrong, but I, I didn't see any model of this before, you know, like, you know, like, where did you come up with this idea? Was there, was there any other place that you referred to that sort of gave you the inspiration for this? No, not really. I mean, I think the idea basically came from being very attuned to the needs of small businesses from personally knowing a lot of small businesses. So what I tried to do is just put myself in their place, right? The guy that owned the diner we always go to, the friends that own a laundromat. Um, you know, individuals that, that have a you know, small retail outlet somewhere. And now the government says, you, you look, not only you can't open, like you're not allowed to open your restaurant because depending on where you live, that lasted for months. Right. And so now you can't open, you can't function. What do they do? Right. What do they do? Uh, they're going to go out of business is what's going to happen. And they're going to disappear in a couple of weeks. Everyone's going to be immediately laid off. And, and what happens next? So I sort of, and then we, we tried to think through all of the impediments to them actually getting access to these funds in a timely way, because you know, most small businesses only have maybe a week, maybe less of cash on hand to, to do everything from pay their suppliers and orders to, to try to make payroll up Friday. So there really isn't a model for it, because um, we've never, anytime we've had a crisis in the past, the government's pretty good at bailing out large Fortune 500 companies and did that again in some cases here, but but um, but it never has any experience at helping out the small business sector, which is very large, very diverse, and a huge huge percentage of our economy. So because there was no model for this, and because your name was really out front during this from the very get go, um, how did you feel about this? Like, were you nervous? Like, what were your biggest fears about this? Is a giant? It was like three hundred fifty billion. I think it started out with obviously escalated even bigger. Um, you know, were you thinking like this could cause inflation, stagflation? Were you even thinking about fraud at the time as well? Like, what were your fears? Yeah, no. So all of those things. So obviously, I was. We weren't too worried about inflation or stagflation because at that point, you know, there was a systemic collapse that happened. You know, when you take sixty or seventy percent of your economy and close it down for a sustained period of time—two weeks, three weeks—I mean, no one's ever experienced that before. No one knows what happens, but it ain't inflation. I mean, at that point, you're really dealing with a you know borderline depression type situation. So that was our number one fear. I think our biggest fear was an action. My biggest fear was an action. I. Could I prove that this medicine works? No, this was an experimental drug that we used, right? Experimental treatment, but the patient was terminal. I mean, in essence, we were, we were, we were gonna face some things we've never faced before as a country. And I didn't know it was gonna do systemic 
architectural damage to our economy. In essence, this was going to be permanent damage that would probably take a decade to recover from if it had happened. We would still be talking about that damage today uh, had that been the case. Some of these places would have never rebounded in time um, had that been the case. But yeah, we're, we knew that there would be people that would try to commit fraud, and that's why we put in the capability to audit these loans, and, and we required some paperwork up front to show payroll and the like. But ultimately, we understood that we were going to have to roll the dice on this because the, 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 the price of doing nothing uh, was going to be extraordinarily damaging. And, and frankly, there has been fraud, high-profile cases, but the fraud rate in PPP is substantially less than it is in all and virtually every other SBA program. Doesn't it frustrate you when people talk about fraud in this program, not only because of the numbers that you just mentioned, but also that you cobbled, I don't want to say cobble, but you put together this program really under a lot of duress in a short period of time facing an unprecedented, you know, depression, a fall in the economy. So a lot of things couldn't be figured out at that point. I mean, the whole point was to get money in the hands of small businesses. So I'm assuming you went into this saying, yeah, this is the government. There's, there's going to be some fraud. Um, but doesn't even now looking back, because that's that's a people's biggest criticism of the program is they they talk about the fraud. And I just personally, does that does that anger you or annoy you? No, I mean, look, I, I think people have to nitpick about whatever they want. But I ask people, what was the alternative? Yeah. Like, what were you going to do with millions and millions and millions of small businesses that were going to shut it, like close, like be gone? And then the landlords and those commercial places were also not going to be collecting rent. How are you going to process all these people, millions of people that were going to immediately hit the unemployment rolls? We had trouble dealing in most states with the numbers as is, people couldn't get access to their benefits. So how, how are you going to deal with that? How are you going to deal with the potential for civil unrest when angry people were you know, out there rioting in streets because they couldn't feed their families or pay their rent or keep the electricity on? So I, I think people haven't thought through all of those things when they argue that. What was the alternative? They don't have one. And, and as far as fraud is concerned, yeah, there's, you know, Medicare is full of fraud. Yeah. There's a lot of people, no one's talking about banning Medicare. Medicaid's full of fraud. Uh, they don't talk about just credit card fraud. Is anybody talking about getting rid of credit cards? The point is, the way you deal with fraud is you try to build some things at the front end to make it harder, but then you prosecute it at the back end. And that's what's happening. And, and, and it's happening because people are turning people in. It's happening because the larger loans, the big ones over a certain amount, uh, could be audited and looked at, and you would have to keep that paperwork and prove that that's how you use the money. And um, so I, I think that's beginning to happen. And that's what should happen is people should go to jail and pay restitution for what they stole. Okay. Um, you know, initially when the program started rolling out, the, um, the big banks, the larger banks were really slow to react. And I remember you were on Twitter and you were furious. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that story? Well, a couple of things were happening. First, some of the banks were just, they weren't interested in it beyond their commercial clients, even their business accounts were not. They wanted their big commercial clients and part of that was because they were easier to deal with. They had better record keeping, um, had a longer relationship with them. And so they sort of focused on that. Um, you know, some of these banks were acting like if the money was their money, that they were at risk. There was no risk for the bank. The bank was just basically passive. They were the middleman that would put up the money and then be guaranteed to be paid back. And their only job was to process the paperwork. And so my question to those banks was, well, what are you going to do when all your business customers and your individual account holders, for that matter, don't have any money to put in your bank? Anyway? What are you going to do with that? But ultimately, I think that was the big issue is that the banks that had uh, that, that had uh, existing commercial accounts handled the commercial accounts, but didn't want to deal with their business clients. People don't realize that just to have a business account, you're in a totally different section of a big bank. Um, and, and, and so for them, I mean, it, it took some time to come around. Uh, the regional banks are the ones that really stepped up. Yeah. And, and, and I thought we always thought that would be the case.
states. We think regional banks are like supremely positioned for this kind of lending. And some of them were very proactive about uh, marketing this and in some ways ended up attracting a bunch of new account holders who haven't forgotten how those regional banks were there in their time of need. But but I would always, you know, the one thing that, that, that we paid the bankers a 1% fee yep. to do nothing but process paperwork yep. uh, on behalf of government money and uh, that there was no liability on their end whatsoever. Some of it was misunderstanding and not understanding the program well because it was brand new. Some of it, frankly, was they just weren't, uh, you know, set up with that. They didn't see the benefit in doing it. Uh, but but ultimately, most came around and, and had they not, uh, we'd be in a real tough spot right now. This is true. Uh, you know, you're, you're surveyed about the regional banks and community banks. Well, a lot of banks, the smaller banks recognize it as a great marketing opportunity to, you know, connect with a lot of small businesses and keep them flowing. Um, it was a long-term thing. Um, but just, you know, you know when, when all this was happening, and again, you're the one that put through this legislation, you're seeing the banks are very slow to react. You know, the economy is plummeting. Were you, were you doing anything in particular? Could you do anything? It's just a you know, as just a senator, were you calling up banks? Were you convening meetings? Was there anything going on behind the scenes that you were that you were doing to really push the banking community forward? Yeah. So to, to a couple of things, as we were drafting it and working through it, um, we were in communication with banks and lenders because we wanted to understand uh, what it would take from a technical standpoint for them to be able to participate in it. Again, understand that in the midst of what us doing this, this was a seven or eight day period in which we slowly but surely were seeing these rolling shutdowns across yeah. the country, in some yeah. cases more severe than us. But I think every day that went by, there was some initial resistance to this. Like, you know, what is this a giveaway program? What is this? I think as the days went by and people realized the depth and scope of this, the danger behind all these measures, uh, there was more and more willingness to help, both among members of the Senate and House, but also, frankly, among the, uh, the banking sector. And then we also provided enough flexibility in the bill for the rulemaking, in essence, for Treasury to have enough flexibility to come in and tweak things. And then, you know, Treasury came out with this first set of, of, of um, frequently asked questions. And so as we were getting questions, we were forwarding that to uh, the Treasury Secretary and the Treasury. And they deserve a lot of credit because they, they used that flexibility to tweak the program uh, to, to make sure that it was reaching uh, the intended audience and that the legislative intent behind the bill was being achieved. You, you can't foresee every, you know, un, un, uh, un, you can't anticipate everything that arises in the midst of this. And that's why you leave enough flexibility in the rulemaking side to ensure that the rules allow you to, to tweak things to, to make sure that they work. Maybe you've already answered this, but you're, you're absolutely right. The treasury came out with this. It was this ever expanding frequently asked question document um, because you, you really can't foresee everything when you're in that business, seasonal businesses, forgiveness of non-payroll costs, you know, the documentation required, all that kind of stuff. So there were reiterations and renewals. Did, you know, so Senator Rubio, like how, how involved did you stay with all of us? Like after the initial CARES Act passed, you got the ball rolling. Um, you know, were you pretty much like, all right, it's in the treasury and the SBA's hands right now and I'm moving on to other issues or did you- No, no, we were very involved. So I, I felt like the screenwriter uh, in dealing with the director and the producer of a movie. And that is that this is what I envisioned when I wrote it. And so this is how we wanted to, to work. Uh, we, frankly, we, we were home at that point. So we were working off of Zoom, but we were, I would say, probably working 15 hours a day between Zoom calls with Chambers of Commerce, doing uh, press events uh, online to inform people about the existence of the program, talking to bankers, both regional and, uh, and, and large ones, uh, and talking to the small business sector about the impediments they were coming across. And then, frankly, just a bunch of family, friends, and people that I personally know, constituents that were calling in with complaints. Look, the first couple of days that this was going on, we had people going into banks and they were running credit checks on them. And they're like, well, yeah. there's no credit check. It's not your money. 
uh, we're just asking you to process the paperwork. We're going to pay you a 1% fee. I mean, that's the easiest money these banks, you know, we're going to come across at that point. There wasn't a lot of banking activity happening. As, if you can imagine these things shut down, many of their branches weren't even open in many cases. So this was happening online and so forth. So we, we, we stayed very involved with the implementation and then people forget, but you know, there was a certain amount of money of guarantee that was gone within five or six days. It was yes. so much that we had to figure out how to go back without bringing the entire Senate and House into session and pass uh, a second and, and then a third wave of additional authorization for money so that there was money available for the lending. Throughout all this process, you were talking about some of the colleagues in the Senate, like Senator Cardin. Uh, you know, I mean, what, what, was it was it throughout a bipartisan effort? I mean, was you know, I mean, small businesses is a is a pretty bipartisan thing. It's kind of tough to come out against small businesses. So I'm assuming your internal process was 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 not as hard as some other bills that you might have been working on. Is that a fair? No, statement? I mean, remember the CARES Act involves so many other provisions that yeah. uh, I would say that ours was probably the most meaningful and the least controversial. Yeah, in fact, like no we're telling the press in the hallway multiple times if it was our work is done. If it was just up to us, we'd be ready to go. So and it was, you know, the, the only piece of legislation that was reauthorized two other times without unanimous. I mean, it required a unanimous vote in the House, a unanimous vote in the Senate. We weren't even in session. So these were pro forma sessions. And we got those things done and passed because of the lack of controversy around it. And I think it was a combination of an understanding of how critical and dire the situation was. It was real fear about the systemic risk that posed to our economy. And, and, and I also think, uh, uh, so, I mean, that's why I really didn't have a lot of, didn't have any sort of partisan overtones. It really didn't have any opposition per se. You had some snide remarks and criticisms from individuals that uh, always have something to criticize, but never anything to offer. But generally speaking, um, we didn't come across any of that. And I always ask people the same thing. No one claims any program is perfect. It was drafted by humans and applies to humans and humans are imperfect. But what would we have done if we didn't have anything like PPP? What would America look like right now if the people and the companies who received these funds had to lay off their workers and shutter their doors? What would the country look like right now? It would not look like it looks like right now. With all the problems we have, this would be on top of that. It would be, I would argue, catastrophic. Yeah, I, I I would accept that argument. Um, so looking back, you know, now 2020 hindsight, um, and I know you had a short period of time to put all this together, but if you were to do this program again or something similar to it, I'm kind of curious, what what would you do differently? Like what mistakes do you think were made? What do you think um, could have been improved? Well, I think maybe early on in the process, uh, you know, there was some um, some difficulty about onboarding the, the financial tech companies, getting them on board. Some of these were new to the game, new to the yep. process. So I think that uh, maybe a better outreach at the front end, sort of identifying who some of these companies were and how their processes would work. I think an understanding of how some of these uh, real small community lenders could have been incentivized. Uh, you know, and, and we tried to do that by giving the higher percentage for the smaller loans so they would step on board. I think the one thing that I'm not sure we could have done differently, and I certainly had an understanding of, is how many people that really are small businesses, be they independent contractors or one or you know mom and pop shops, really didn't have banking relationships. And I understood that was real. I'm not sure that we explained that enough to people about the fact that there are businesses out there that actually don't have true. business banking relationships. I mean, it's their personal account. They might deposit money, but, you know, for whatever reason, they generally never open an account on the name of their business. They're an S corporation, so they're passed through anyway. And I don't know if people understand that, the you know, that the, the food truck in some places doesn't have a 
corporate entity business account. And, and so when they go to a bank on behalf of that business, the bank's not in the business of opening up a new account just for PPP at that point. So, you know, I think that I'm not sure what we could have done differently about it other than recognize that as, as a real challenge early on and, and, and tried to, um, you know, uh, point that out to people who we were going to have some issues with people uh, in these situations. And I, 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 one thing I would hear about is I wasn't, the one thing that would always tick me off is when I would hear someone say, and the reason I'll tell you why it would tick me off, I would hear people say, we weren't, we went to the bank and we weren't approved for a PPP. There's no <laughs> approval process. There it's was just no. a, right, there's just a verification process. So they were saying one of two things, either A, by the time they went to the bank, the funds had run out, which ultimately was not the case uh, once we got to the second or third tranche, or B, they were saying they went to a bank somewhere who just didn't want to do the business for them, didn't want to do it for them. And, um, and that's why what really upset me is the second one. I, I do believe that there were small businesses that had to go through a harder time than they needed because they weren't sophisticated owners. They were good at what they did at business, but they weren't sophisticated about the world of finance and banking. And bankers decided we don't really see a need to service people like this. They either don't have big enough deposits or they're not customers to begin with. And again, that's why I think the, these uh, credit unions and regional banks are so critical. You know, and it's funny, Chick, is the uh, you're right about going forward in the future, particularly in, in you know, look at it in your own state as a huge number of business owners that are immigrants, they're Latino, they're Hispanic, they don't necessarily have banking relationships. It's not what they were used to ever having. And if we were going to have a program done like this in the future, um, that's got to be taken into account, right? Yeah, and I, I think that's just going to be a growing nature of um, of the commercial transactions. Uh, yeah. You're seeing more and more cashless transactions going on. Um, I'll be mean, talking about crypto and what that all is going to mean because it's sort of uncertain at this point. But I think that by and large, because technology has now allowed a business to be someone working out of the spare bedroom of their home uh, using these, this, these very you know, Wi-Fi signals that we're using now to conduct this interview. I mean, I, I think a lot of people have learned that there are a lot of businesses and business activity that you can do without a PO box, without a, a front office. Uh, yeah. the, 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 I think that the technology has sort of limited the barrier to entry for a business person. And in some cases, what do you do about the guy that drives for Uber, yep. drives for uh, Uber, you know, drives for Uber, Uber Eats, and also has a, a second job, you know, as a landscape, uh, uh, you know, uh, contractor. Right. Uh, neither one probably potentially has an account, right? right. A, a banking account. Um, two more questions and I'll let you go. Um, Number one is, you know, this because this was such a new model of financing for small businesses. Do you see a future for it? Do you see it as a potential model for you know future public-private financing and funding for startups for other not necessarily in a pandemic situation? Yeah, look, I think there's the potential for going back to what we had originally talked about, which is how do we get small businesses to become part of our supply chain solutions in this country? You know, not every supply chain, whether it's in services or goods, has to be built on the back of some large operation half a world away. So is there a place for small businesses? And is there and the hardest thing to do in that regard is get financed. So is there a way to sort of focus in on some key industries and provide financing, favorable financing through the SBA for small businesses that are in key sectors uh, and can help us with either a, na a critical national need or, or a, a potential supply chain uh, vulnerability that the country has? Um, but, but the best way to think about PPP is imminent domain, right? If the government comes tomorrow and says that property that you own and that you use to live in or for business, we need it. We need it for the public good. 
Okay. They can do that. They have the power to do that, but they have to compensate you. They have to make you whole. They have to give you money so that you can go and buy another property and continue on your business. In many ways, that's what the pandemic shutdowns were. They were a taking. They went into businesses and said, you cannot operate. You can't seek customers. You can't have people come in. You can't open the gym or the yoga studio or whatever it might be. You can't do it. And uh, that's a taking. And so the, the argument is, in this case, fine. You're going to take this from us. Then you have to at least help us pay our employees or they're going to come after you for unemployment. you got to help us pay our rent or you're going to ruin our credit and you're going to begin the collapse of commercial real estate in this country as well. And that's what we did. There was no profit built into this. All the money here was either for payroll or for overhead, not for profit. And, you know, um, that didn't solve the problem for everybody. But it solved the problem for, for millions of people and millions of businesses. Final question. You know, it's been over two and a half years or getting on two and a half years since the legislation. I got to ask you, like, you know, you, you look back on this and the impact that it has. And I'm curious, like, how does that make you feel? You know, is this the, is this the was that the most impactful legislation you think you've ever done? And is this one of those types of legislation where you're like, this is why I got into politics? Yeah, let me tell you, not, not only was it the most impactful legislation I've ever passed, I believe it's been the most impactful legislation that the Congress has undertaken in a quarter century or longer. I mean, that's how dramatic of an impact this has. Yeah. When you're talking about 12, 13 million small businesses that would have vanished in this country overnight, yep. uh, no one can tell you what that does to an economy, and, and, but, and how many of them would not have survived. Let's say half of them would not have survived. It would have been cataclysmic. So yes, I think this was an intervention that was incredibly meaningful. And yes, it does make our service meaningful, right? I mean, we go up to D.C., unfortunately, you know, every week and largely nowadays, especially now that we're in the minority, we're debating stuff that's never going to pass or, you know, we're arguing over things that, that are important and have an impact, but most people, it doesn't impact their lives. This is probably one of the few and rare times in which we were able to get something done and done quickly that actually impacted real people in a dramatic, life-changing way immediately. And, um, you know, you don't get very many opportunities to do that. So absolutely. I mean, if, if my service in the Senate ended this, this very day, I'd be able to say that my time there was meaningful just because of this, not to mention all the other things I've worked on. Senator Rubio, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Do you have a topic or a guest that you would like to hear on Thrive? Please let us know. Visit payx.me forward slash Thrive Topics and send us your ideas or matters of interest. Also, if your business is looking to simplify your HR, payroll, benefits, or insurance services, see how Paychex can help. Visit the resource hub at paychex.com forward slash works. That's W-O-R-X. Paychex can help manage those complexities while you focus on all the ways you want your business to thrive. I'm your host, Gene Marks, and thanks for joining us. Till next time, take care. This podcast is property of Paychex Incorporated 2022, all rights reserved.